Hey, listeners, before we get started, if you're enjoying these episodes, you can actually check them out on YouTube in full video. You can just search Honest Ecommerce and you'll get pulled right to our channel. Make sure you subscribe and ring the bell for all the updates. I think it's an interesting story to say, you know, you go full force, balls to the wall. Oh my God, this is amazing. But if you fail, like, whatever. And for me, I was like, if I fail, like, I'm homeless. Welcome to Honest Ecommerce, a podcast dedicated to cutting through the BS and finding actionable advice for online store owners. I'm your host, Chase Clymer, and I believe running a direct-to-consumer brand does not have to be complicated or a guessing game. On this podcast, we interview founders and experts who are putting in the work and creating real results. I also share my own insights from running our top Shopify consultancy, Electric Eye. We cut the fluff in favor of facts to help you grow your e-commerce business. Let's get on with the show. Alrighty, welcome back to Honesty Commerce, everybody. I'm your host, Chase Clymer, and today I'm welcoming a very special guest. We've got the founder and CEO of Yellowberry, Megan. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Oh, I'm excited too. So, <laughs> I think that um, before we really dive into it, uh, there's a there's kind of a thing that we kind of have to put out there, which is, you know. While age is just a number, what you accomplished at such a young age was pretty cool. Uh, I mean, you were featured on Time Magazine's 25 Most Influential Teens. Uh, you were included in the Huffington Post list of 14 Most Fearless Teens. Uh, you know, how, uh, how is being a quote unquote teen entrepreneur uh, kind of almost in like the, the zeitgeist of the world? Like, how did that affect you? Um, oh, my God. it was very surreal. I think that the, the timeless in particular, I remember because. Oh my gosh, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but I was actually in New York like the week before the article came out and I was with my mom, who's my partner. And I got this email from the reporter who was putting everything together and they were like, Hey, can you send a headshot? Um, you're going to be featured on this list. And I was, I thought it was a spam email and I was like, whatever, you can just pull something from our website. I was like, get out of a cab or something. And then this article came out on Monday and I like, I started crying because I just, I was like, it was people like Malala and the, I mean, like the Jenners were on it and just like what I deemed as these incredibly famous, influential people. And I was like, who am I? This like 18 year old girl from Wyoming with a bra company. Um, but I think to take a step back, I like it was very surreal, super unexpected, but also I think, um, was really cool to kind of be even in that league, if you will. And sort of like, I think it helped amplify Yellowberry quite a bit and gave a lot of like validation to the company and the mission and the brand. And um, I don't know, I think sometimes when you're in a startup, like in the trenches, you think that you're crazy. And it gave a little bit of like validation that we're maybe not. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I kind of just wanted to start there to set the tone for this conversation, which is going to be, you know, this is a, this is a wild ride. And so everyone <laughs> stick around for the rest of it. But I, let's let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to where did this idea come from? And I already know the story because I read a lot on the <laughs> website, but share it for the audience that might not be as informed as I am. No, for sure. So I have a younger sister, Mary Margaret, and we went shopping to buy her first bra. And she was 12 years old at the time. I was like 17. And all of the options for her were just like really overly sexualized, like a ton of padding, push up. Um, and kind of she was the whole experience was kind of there's a lot of embarrassment, which I was like, I, I don't really 
I just remember sort of that in hindsight. But really what stuck out to me was when she tried on this bra that the saleswoman had suggested as like a very popular first bra option. There was this weird like leopard print push up thing. And she just like didn't even really have boot like it just didn't fit her. And so there was that end of the spectrum or there was just sort of these really poor quality things that we ended up buying. But you wash them once, they fall apart, kind of just crappy. And she wasn't like, like the whole experience was just really poor. And I remember like I was obsessive about this idea of like, why can't she just have a bra that's like cute and fun and going to fit her body? And this thing that all girls go through, this first bra experience and... I really like couldn't stop thinking about it. And then very serendipitously, like a week or two later, my dad won this bra in a raffle that was this like, it was like a gag gift at this like adult ski racing league in Jackson. And he gave it to me because he didn't need it. And it was the first time, you know, this is what nine or 10 years ago now. And it was the first time I'd ever seen a bra that didn't have any padding, but wasn't a sports bra. This is like very pre the bralette era. And I remember holding it and being like, oh my God, this is exactly what Mary Margaret needs. Just like cute, fun colors and like, but just made for her body. And so I just took that idea and I went with it and I was like, okay, lots of color, lots of fun patterns, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I found a seamstress and I like built a website and just like, you know, I figured out that you could, if you're just ordering sample yardage, companies will just send as many samples as you would like. And, um, cause I, you know, I was in high school and didn't really have any money. And so, um, but the, the idea for me was like, yes, I wanted to build this product, but really, I feel like girls are so over-sexualized, so young. And this felt like a really valuable product that I could create to really help sort of girls grow up at their own pace. Um, I think we've always said as a brand, like it's not our job to say what is and what's not appropriate, but to give girls an other, what I think is a better option than often what's already there um, was super exciting. So I worked on it for, I think it was about a year before it launched and it launched my senior year in high school. In the first couple months, I sold like three bras to like my dad and mom and grandma and you know like because I I don't even think you could really buy things on the website. It was you know I didn't know what it was doing. Um, but I launched a Kickstarter campaign with this guy who made the, helped me make the video that went totally viral. And it I, I mean I had it's what you dream about, but I never expected that to happen. And it really was my mom looking back as I was like, we could have been selling straw because people resonated so deeply with my story. You know, as we've learned over the years, nine out of 10 women remember their first bra experience. And it's often because it's really negative. And so they want better for their daughter. And then supporting like this four girls, by girls brand was just kind of this great story, particularly in hindsight. Um, but you know, it was just very honest in what happened. So um, I'll pause there because I could just keep talking about it forever. But that was kind of like the first year or so of kind of like idea to fruition. All right. So uh, in so this this experience happened back in 2013, mm-hmm. and then the Kickstarter happened when 2014, 2015. Yeah, it was like that spring. All right, and then the Kickstarter went viral, mm-hmm. and that's where I've had a, a lot of previous entrepreneurs on, and they're like, "Yeah, once the Kickstarter like did way better than we anticipated, <laughs> there was a, there was a mind shift." mindset shift almost from like, this is a good idea to like, this is like a business. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I think that's, um, you know, we all have a lot of ideas every day. And I think the challenge is obviously making it real and bringing it to fruition. 
But I think even one step further is like not only to like build the product or make the app or whatever you're doing, but then to have real customers like giving you. I mean, I had never because we're an e-commerce business. Like, I don't meet a lot of the customers. I don't meet most of them, and it was a really surreal experience. Which sounds so silly, but just to have these people just sending money and like buying this product. Like at that point too, we didn't even have photos of it. Like they were just buying this idea, you know. But I think um, that was for sure like a huge turning point um, and sort of like the big start. I think for us. Absolutely. So now uh, launching the Kickstarter and, and getting that fulfilled, like that, uh, we've spoke about on the podcast a bunch of times. But what you know, once the pot, like once the uh, initial Kickstarter was complete, how did you kind of shift from a kind of crowdfunding business to like a more for lack of better terms, like traditional e-commerce business. What were some of those challenges? Well, it's funny you ask. And I kind of... I I should have done a lot more research about Kickstarter before I was like, I'm going to do this. But um, I essentially just made the products for sale on the Kickstarter, but I already made them. So I use my like life savings at this point, which was like... I basically had four grand. I could make 400 bras, $10, you know, whatever. And um, I sold them through the Kickstarter. And so what happened was we we sold so many that I was not expecting to. Um, I think the goal was 25,000 and we did about double that. But then the, you know, the following sales was just... I, we couldn't keep up. Like it went from having three orders total to like hundreds of orders a day. Um, and so really it was the capacity from a manufacturing standpoint because the very first factory, I always sort of love this as a part of our story. Um, when I was initially calling people to make this first line of like 400 bras, it's such a small order for factories. They would just hang up the phone. I'm like some teen girl. They're like, from Wyoming. Like, who is she? And so this one guy happened to be going out of business and he was very kind and he was like, you know, I'll just on the way out, I'll do your first order, whatever. And not expecting to ever hear from us or for, for us to hear from him again. And then we ended up working with him for the following years. And even today we'll still do some, some things here and there. Um, but that was a really big ramp up and just like understanding the supply chain of like it in our fabrics and the threads and all of the, you know, the embroidered berry we were doing at the time. And then I think, you know, all the heat transfers and all the pieces to the product and our products are not super technical, but I think that was really challenging. Um, and then just understanding like the timeline it takes to build an actual product. It's not an overnight thing. It can take weeks or months. You know, we were making things in California at the time. So that cuts that timeline by a lot, which is great. It's just much more expensive. But our, you know, you sort of grow organically into this, into the size of the factory. Um, and so I, sorry, I actually don't know if I answered your question, but I think that that was really, I do remember like the biggest pieces of feedback that we had was people just wanted more things to buy because I only had two styles and two colors of each. And they were super colorful. There was like pink and blue and purple and green. And people were like, okay, these are great. But I also do need like, you know, skin tone colors and white for underscore uniforms or soccer things or whatnot. So then it was really a challenge of like, okay, how quickly can we design new styles in yes, in a lot of color, because that's very much like on brand with us, but also offering things in more um, traditional, like more basic colors, basically. Um, And that has really like maintained like, you know, probably three quarters of what we have is super basic. And then you have a lot of color. Um, but yeah, it was just like really focusing on new styles. And then we over the over the years branch into like underwear, a little bit of lounge, activewear. But it was always sort of anchored by this first bra experience and really focused on girls eight to fifteen, which is our, our core audience, our core customer. 
Absolutely. You kind of answered the question, but now I'll ask a very specific one. So after, after you kind of evolved beyond the capabilities of Kickstarter, you know, what was the technology that you guys are using to kind of run the first version of the website? Um, our very first version, I'm I honestly not sure. I think it was called like Miva Merchant, which I don't, I, I don't think I've met someone who knows that um, company before. And it was great if you were doing like two orders a day and then it really quickly mm-hmm. was really challenging. And then we really quickly moved over to Shopify and have been on Shopify for years now. I love Shopify. I cannot say enough wonderful things about that. Um, especially like I don't have a coding or technical background in that sense. So it's super user-friendly for our purposes. Um, but also like quite a bit of functionality if we need development um, to come in. Um, but that was great. And then I think also the logistics is always the biggest challenge. And so I think we went through a couple iterations of, excuse me, like inventory management systems, which even to this day, like now our distribution center is essentially that piece, but that was always really challenging in terms of like inventory management and also inventory forecasting. Um, because Yellowberry is great in the sense that our products are not seasonal. Excuse me, like we're not running like a big spring or, you know, fall collections that have to be winter, you know, whatever. It's just like new colors and new styles, um, which I love, which is great. Um, but like forecasting those is always sort of a challenge. Um, and so I think we probably went through like three or four different softwares that was a mixture between um, fulfillment and product inventory management. Um, mm-hmm. but I still like, I still am not sure. Like, I don't know. It's an interesting thing. So now that's all hooks directly from Shopify into our DC. Absolutely. No. So like, uh, it's funny about inventory forecasting and, uh, just kind of like managing the cash flow at that part of the business. Like I always tell founders is like, that's like a, that's a problem that you evolve into like after mm-hmm. a certain point that you never think would be an issue. Yep. Um, I don't know how much you can share about that or like how you can try to educate younger entrepreneurs about like it's almost a shell game with money at a certain point. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you have any insights or just like things you can share about that experience, I think it'd be very useful. Um, you know, it's funny. I feel like you, it was one of those things, particularly as a young founder, like I didn't. I didn't necessarily think through all of the pieces of the business because I didn't know, like you don't know what you don't know, but that was definitely a predicament in which we found ourselves like, you know, the first couple inventory buys and it's like, feels massive. You're spending like a hundred thousand dollars. And then obviously that's grown a lot over the years, but those first big bites you're, um, it's really challenging too. Like I remember the first time that we, we had a really big chunk of inventory and it was a full collection of like bras, underwear, lounge, um, active, like it was really our full line. And we had gone from basically like four styles to that. And that felt like a big jump. And that's, you're totally flying blind because you don't have any customer data, um, or like purchasing habits based on like what's going to sell. And so you're making assumptions based on what you think. And some are going to be wrong and some are going to be great. But I think from that, like this predicament of like inventory forecasting and budgeting for that just never goes away. It just becomes a bigger challenge, if you will. Um, and I actually remember listening to some an interview with some founder. It might have been uh, Jen Hyman of Runs Runway because I, I really look up to her. But it was talking about how as the business grows, some of those like challenges and problems, they grow, but they grow way more exponentially. And so the right and wrong and sort of the importance of being way more on point with that decision making is super important because you go from, you know, all of a sudden you're dealing with millions of dollars and it's, um, you know, you're, you're not gambling, obviously, cause you're, you're making educated guesses, but buying for like forecasted inventory, you know, is, is quite an interesting challenge. <laughs> 
If you're struggling with scaling your sales, maybe Electric Eye can help. Our team has helped our clients generate millions of dollars in additional revenue through our unique brand scaling framework. You can learn more about our agency at electriceye.io. That's E-L-E-C-T-R-I-C-E-Y-E.io. Mesa is the all-in-one answer for automating the everyday challenges of running a Shopify store. With automation, you can focus on the bigger picture, knowing that everything is still getting done reliably and efficiently. Join successful brands like Mudwater, Chubbies, and Golden that learned how to use clever workflows to get more done without more overhead. Whether you need order details in Google Sheets, products added in Etsy, or customer information updated in your CRM, Mesa connects your data where it's needed most. To put it quite simply, Mesa is a better way to work. Browse pre-made templates for Shopify's most popular apps to get your first automation up and running in minutes. Search for Mesa, that's M-E-S-A, in the Shopify App Store and download the app today. Our partner Rewind can protect your e-commerce store by automatically backing up your business-critical data. Rewind should be the first app you install to protect your store against human error, misbehaving apps, or collaborators gone bad. It's like having your very own magic undo button. Trusted by over 100,000 businesses, from side hustles to the biggest online retailers like Nix, Paul Mitchell, and Pampers. Best of all, visit rewind.com slash honest e-commerce to get your first month absolutely free. That's rewind.com slash honest e-commerce. Getting an online business off the ground isn't easy. So if you find yourself working late, tackling a to-do list that's a mile long with your fifth cup of coffee by your side, remember, great email doesn't have to be complicated. That's what Klaviyo is for. It's the email and SMS platform built to help e-commerce brands earn more money by creating genuine customer relationships. Once you set up your free Klaviyo account, you can start sending beautiful branded messages in minutes thanks to drag and drop design templates and built-in guidance. And with e-commerce specific recommendations and insights, you can keep growing your business as you go. Get started with a free account at klaviyo.com honest. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash H-O-N-E-S-T. Being able to... You just got to know your numbers. You got to know your margins very well. You've got to have really good relationships with everybody across your supply chain. Yeah. Um, I know... I'm going to look it up and I'll have to put it in the show notes for everyone listening because I'm drawing a blank on it now. But I know we, we really drove into this concept of like... You are trying to create this float where you have almost free money within the way that you're financing and running your purchasing. Totally. Yeah. So uh, if I can remember it, I'll put it in the show notes. But um, well, that, and I think that those like those um, like ebbs and flows are a lot, like I think you feel them a lot more with wholesale. We yeah. because we're primarily shop or um, like just D to C, um, we don't feel that as much. But totally, I mean, it's like your cash flow is your lifeline, right? Exactly. Yeah, and it's especially when you, uh, going into Q three and Q four. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that a lot of uh, businesses are anticipating growth every year. And now they need to borrow more and more money every year to have the products to hit that growth. Uh, and it, it, it just goes back to day one of the business of any business is, is like mm-hmm. the, when you want the money, they're not going to give it to you. So you need to start relationships with people. You need to start relationships with people before you need it and show them that you're creditable and smart and you, you are lasting. Uh, because at one point you are going to need access to more capital than you have on hand. Oh, it's fun. <laughs>
It's never ending. <laughs> uh, so th- these days, obviously, you're, you're running a lot of uh, uh, just, you know, direct consumer, hanging out on Shopify. Uh, and I'm assuming the major parts of your business, you know, kind of a, is a more traditional kind of marketing stack, a lot of paid social followed up with uh, kind of owned marketing, email, SMS, things of that nature. Totally, for sure. And I think that we, we do pretty standard practices with that. I think we have a lot of room to further develop our social campaigns, but we do a lot with like a lot of our customers will find Yellowberry organically because we rank really well with Google. Um, but also we do a lot of search campaigns in that way too, because our customers are typically searching for first bras or things for their daughters. And mm-hmm. so they are really, it's not necessarily just browsing. It's typically like my daughter needs a bra and she needs it like tomorrow. Um, and so we have a really high conversion rate. I think we're, we are super niche in that respect. And so we look at it as like acquiring that sort of, yeah, that um, kind of grounding product and then maintaining. So we have a really high customer reorder rate. It's like over 50% every month which is great if anything i like want that to go down as we acquire more customers um but it's super healthy and i think that always speaks to like the quality of the product and our customers will stay with us for sort of like the next several years um which is great so we put a ton of work in that product expansion to also increase like cart size and just like lifetime value of the customer absolutely now megan is there anything that i forgot to ask you about that you think would resonate with our audience well, see, now you're putting me on the spot because I should know your audience better. <laughs> but I just, I mean, personally, I always love to sort of know like the challenges and things that people are thinking about and talking about. I think particularly with COVID has been really interesting and like the different pivots and situations. Um, in terms of that, I think like young founder challenges was quite interesting. Um, I know there's a lot of, to sort of go on a tangent, I know there's a ton of sort of... Um, information and sort of things about being like a female founder as a disadvantage, which like I don't disagree with by any means, but I feel like being a young founder is really challenging because you don't have any track record. You don't have any like proof that you can do this. But I think that um I've also had the privilege of like I lived in New York for a few years and I'm a part of this program called the Teal Fellowship, um, in which it's all young people like me. And I think being around people it's not every 20 year old that's like starting and, you know, raising money and hiring people and building a company, but those that are typically like really blown and going, which is super inspiring, I think. Absolutely. I mean, any of those topics, uh, <laughs> the floor is yours. You can dive on in. <laughs> um, well, I guess we can start with COVID. Like, have, what have you heard? Like, um, when you talk about with founders about their COVID experience, like, what are you sort of hearing? Um, it was very scary at the start. Uh, the ones that survived it, there are some that didn't, you know what I mean? Um, and yeah. um, some of the ones that didn't probably don't make it on the podcast, but maybe, maybe, maybe I will find to go out. Maybe I'll purposely go out and find <laughs> someone to tell that story because it's, it's still, it's a cautionary tale, but yeah. um, basically what we're seeing, you know, from either having people on the podcast or having, you know, talking to people at the agency, it's they did, they did gangbusters during COVID because everybody was shopping online. Um, And then um, on the backs of that with iOS 14 and tracking their metrics and not being able to do the same growth as they did, I think that some some founders didn't realize that that was lightning in a bottle during the pandemic and the sales. And trying to obtain those same growth goals might have been, you know, setting up the bar a little bit too high. And I've heard that a few times. Um, and it depends on kind of what industry you're in and, and what sector. Um, so that's, that's kind of been something that I, I've learned and seen through my conversations. But what was the kind of experience over at Yellowberry? Um, well, I think it's super interesting, especially being like two years out. So I think we have enough hindsight to really sort of 
pick that apart. But for us, um, we definitely fell into the category of we had a fantastic 2020, um, which I think for a while I was like, oh my God, the world is like on fire and, you know, we're doing really well. It just, we were looking at the metrics the other day, even for our business, and Q1 was just like, Ugh. and then it was like, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so if we, you know, we had a good start to the year 2020, we're all great. And then we were actually, this was kind of a fun story. Um, we were getting ready to launch a new sort of lounge collection, which we hadn't done in, you know, since however long. And that was like the first week or two of March. And then everything obviously totally shut down. And for like five or six days, we had like no, people were like stocking up on toilet paper and canned tuna and whatnot. And um, I remember seeing something where it was like in our local hospital in Jackson hole, they were like, we're looking for 500 mask donations. And we were like, we have this extra fabric and we had not very much of it. And we were like, why don't we just, like for every scrunchie someone buys, we'll donate the, we'll make a mask and donate it to the hospital. And we put that out in like, I think an Instagram post and we do not have a big Instagram following. And it was like Instagram, Facebook, and maybe an email. And we, we sold them out in like an hour. And I was like, Oh, we don't even really sell scrunchies. And I was like, Oh my God, this is insane. And then we had people that were like, you know, my daughter is a nurse in Denver. Can I send her a mask or, or et cetera, et cetera. And so it just really blossomed. And the next day we did, we made live, again, no photos, no product descriptions, no nothing, that it was like you could buy a mask or you could donate a mask for $5 because we our purpose was like not for us to make money. It was really just to like make the product. And we had the next, I think the, the following four or five days were company record sales days. And we had like no mark, like we had no margin. There was really no profit and we were donating all the profits, but the number of new customers and people that were coming that just discovered Yellowberry because it was so word of mouth and it was so early because this is when we, we didn't really know anything about COVID. And so this mask thing really took off and that it was, again, it was this use of fabric that we were like, there's no way we can launch a lounge product when people are dying. Like that's crazy, but we can make these masks. And then, um, you know, you mentioned factory relations and things like that. We, we make a lot of things in China. And so as this mask thing really continued to take off, we, um, started make we started getting like contracts with universities and schools and government contracts and hospitals. And we just started making, I mean, like, hundreds of thousands of millions of masks. Like, it was crazy. And I was like, God, I have been in the wrong business because it took us years to sell a, mil- a million bras. And like, but it was just um because we had these factory relationships that, you know, could source it, had the patterns ready to go and ship super easily at these massive quantities. Um, it was a we were just in a really great position. And I was like, well, we were so lucky. And it's like, well, took a lot of years to be in a position to be lucky. You know what I mean? Um, that, so that was really fascinating. And I think was this whole extra like side of, it was like a side business for us. That was just crazy. And I think, and then ironically, we had been planning this launch of our basics collection, which is essentially like more price point focused products. The biggest barrier to entry for us is that the price is quite a bit higher than all other products that are on the market. And that started because in the beginning, I just couldn't offer them and still, you know, make a profit. And so now that we've grown and we can, you know, we can order these mass quantities and offer them in a less, you know, less cost to the customer. Um, we launched that in, I think it was like May or June thinking, you know, sort of somewhat conservatively that we had enough inventory for, probably, you know, nine, 10, 12 months, good to go. And we sold out of most things in like 30 days. Um, and it was really because the, I was nervous. I remember thinking because it's like, you don't ever want to degrade the brand. So how can we introduce lesser, pro, lesser price, but not lesser quality products? 
in this brand and still, you know, kind of be success. And we would see people buying, you know, four or five basic items plus a higher price item. Like it was just, it was a great addition to our company. And that just happened to be timed with COVID that, you know, we couldn't have planned that. But um, it was interesting to go through obviously not a recession, but just like this crazy time to be like, girls will always need bras and underwear, you know? <laughs> and I think that that, um, as a founder gives you a little bit of breathing room, like when things get hard or whatever, just to sort of go back to be like, this is a product that's filling a need and that people love and we will, you know, continue forward no matter what. <laughs> Absolutely. No, you guys, uh, I appreciate and, and respect when people that are in a position to help, uh, they do their best to help. And so that's very admirable of you, well, thank you. Uh, back then. Um, and we, you mentioned a few minutes back though, about kind of just, uh, the difficulties of being not only a woman founder, but kind of a younger founder. You spoke about being a young founder a bit, but is there anything that you wanted to kind of uh, discuss or just bring to the table around being a woman founder? Yeah. I feel like I should have a soundbite answer to this. I really don't. I mean, if I'm being very honest, I think that the challenges I saw probably most upfront was I did live in New York for a few years. You know, I have um, several angel investors that have been fantastic. And for a couple of years, we were really focused on venture funding. Um, trying to be very like transparent right now. And um, anyway, I was in New York and I, I was pitching all the time. We were looking to raise, you know, however, like I think maybe like a $5 million Series A or something, um, you know, normal, whatever. And this is, I think this has been God, seven or eight years ago now. It's been a long time. Um, but I just remember thinking like every single person I'm pitching or every single VC firm is all men with the exception of like two or three, literally. And I think in total, I should look at the actual number, but I think I pitched around eight or 90 people. And um, I was really frustrated because every single man that I pitched that had a daughter in my demographic, we had this first meeting and then we had the second meeting. And they're like, actually, you know, my daughter has been wearing your stuff for years, but I didn't know my, you know, my wife buys it for her. Um, and it was, it was sort of this uncanny thing of, of every, I was like, well, we're reaching the right people. This is really great. But then they wouldn't, they're like, yeah, but I don't really get it. Like whatever. She's wrong. And on the one hand, I'm like, okay, this is could totally be me. Like not pitching well enough. Maybe the company, maybe it's not what you're looking for. In hindsight, I also was like 20, you know, like I said, no track record, age, whatever. Um, but I do think that's interesting because, you know, every woman I've ever spoken to really understands a concept like this. And it's the same way. Like, I don't know what the, the correlation is with men and like, I don't know, your first boxers or something. I don't, I don't know. But um, like, I wouldn't get that. And I, and I understand. But I think... Um, I don't ever feel like I was discriminated against or whatever because I'm a girl. I do think that um, I had this really interesting list. I was very frustrated at one point. Um, well, so we actually were about to move forward with, with venture and then we pulled back for a multitude of reasons. That's a very long story, um, which I'm glad that we did not. But um, I wrote this list of all of the ways in which people had said no, just to sort of like have and look back on one day. And I came across it maybe a year or two ago, maybe it was during COVID when we had this free time. And I, the one thing that really I was shocked by was like, I felt like a lot of the, like, if you're like, oh, you're just so sweet. You're so nice. Like what a cute idea. This is so sweet. And I was just, it was very demeaning. And I only yeah. bring that up because I don't think that that would have been said to a man who was 20. Like, I don't think it's like a sweet, cute idea. You know, I think that was very gendered, which is if more than anything else, just frustrating. Um, but, you know, I think I think that I'm the type of person too, where like if I am frustrated or annoyed by something like that, it really gets me fired up. And I'm like, I, it's like makes me want to work a lot harder to, like, to prove them wrong. Um, so we've just we've just been growing and doing that. So. 
<laughs> yeah, they, they missed out. Their, their condescending, their condescending attitude. Um, yeah. No, yeah, that 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 is extremely frustrating. Um, you know, definitely need to get some more women in those positions to you know get that experience and it resonate with them instantly. Um, when you so did did you or did you not take a round? So I, we've taken um, like just angel funding, but not okay. venture funding. And that was, you know, I think we've gone back and forth on that for a long time. But really, I, you know, you never want to be the founder that stands in the way. But at the same time, we, one, I don't think we were quite ready for that. But I also like, you know, you're getting on this, this track of like never not fundraising. And that was not, I, I just, for me, I also like, I don't have a trust fund. I don't have a, I didn't have like a plan B, like Yellowberry had to work in order for me to like pay my rent and like have a place to buy groceries, you know, and we had to pay our people. And, and I think that I didn't have the luxury of, I, I think it's an interesting story to say, you know, you go full force, balls to the wall. Oh my God, this is amazing. But if you fail, like whatever. And for me, I was like, if I fail, like I'm homeless. Like, <laughs> and I think that it really um, adjusted the view. Like, I didn't have the luxury of just doing that no matter what because there was absolutely a, like a problem if it didn't work and we weren't able to raise again and continue to grow and hit those massive numbers. Um, and I don't know. I, I I become like a stalker of brands, and I think watching a lot of companies that were like you know consumer based, direct to consumer companies during that time frame and sort of seeing not at all of them around today. I think it's really interesting. Um, not that surprising, but I think that the brand stories and sort of the venture expectations for consumer products are not always super realistic. Um, and I just, I think it's fascinating to sort of watch those play out good and bad. Absolutely. I guess my question would be, you know, with the funding that you did receive, was it, were you backed by women or men or both, both, both. all of the above? Both. Mostly men, actually. <laughs> Absolutely. But hey, but well, I guess there's another question there that is, you, you said you pitched like 80 or 90 times, you know, mm -hmm. did putting in the reps, did you think that you were way better at it at the end? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. But I, I also like, I don't know. I, I think that like, if I were to do that today, I think it would be so different because they would be, you know, you just, you, you gain so much experience and you, the knowledge and the confidence to know exactly what you're in, where you're going. And, and you got um, data to back it up at this time. Totally. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I, um, yeah, I feel, I just, I don't want to talk in circles. I just have so many thoughts about that. I think it's a fascinating world. Um, of like venture capital is weird. Well, you know what? It seems like that we'll just have to have you on again in a couple months and we'll, we'll, we'll go, we'll go down a different rabbit hole. Megan, I cannot thank you enough for coming on for those of the, the listeners that uh, are, you know, excited about the product. Where should they go to check out the product? Oh yeah. We didn't even plug Yellowberry. Um, Yellowberry.com is the website. And then our socials are just all at Yellowberry um, for all of your eight to 15 year old product, everyday product needs. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. I can't thank our guests enough for coming on the show and sharing their knowledge and journey with us. We've got a lot to think about and potentially add into our own business. You can find all the links in the show notes. Make sure you head over to honestecommerce.co to check out all of the other amazing content that we have. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review. And obviously, if you're thinking about growing your business, check out our agency at electriceye.io. Until next time.